podcast about just how many muggers your friend can tell you he beat up before you notice that his money's all gone and that he's suspiciously unbruised. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Henry IV Part 1, a play grappling with eternal questions about the relative values of eternal glory versus venal pleasure, the fraught relationships between fathers and sons, and just how many thieves it takes to get the better of one fat drunkard. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 16, Hotspur the Potster. So please, your majesty. Thy place in council thou hast rudely lost, which by thy younger brother is supplied, and art almost an alien to the hearts of all the court and princes of my blood. The hope of thy time is ruined, and the soul of every man prophetically doth forthink thy fall. Had I so lavish in my presence been so stale and cheap to vulgar company, opinion that it helped me to the crown had left me in reputeless banishment. A fellow of no mark nor likelihood. Will, before we jump into this one, I have a confession to make, and I'm hoping that you can grant me a measure of absolution. Are you uh, are you sitting down? Confess your sins. So this is something that's been weighing on me for a little while, which is that I realize I've I've increasingly been realizing that when I ranked Romeo and Juliet below Love's Labor's Lost, I was making a mistake. As you know, Will, I am given to being a contrarian, and I think my contrarian instincts got the better of me. Can you forgive me, and can you allow a one-time reshuffling of my rankings to move Romeo and Juliet above Love's Labor's Lost? James, I, I will grant you this boon. Ensure that it never happens again, because our listings of the plays of William Shakespeare are etched in stone, like the tablets that were given to Moses uh, from Mount Ararat. So please, go forth and never err again. Yes, this is going to be my one mulligan in the course of all of Shakespeare's plays. So thank you, Will. I appreciate your generosity. And um, on that note, can you please tell us about the plot of Henry IV, Part One? I would be happy to. So, Henry IV, Part One picks up sometime after the end of Richard II, the first work in Shakespeare's Henriad Tetralogy. In Richard II, Richard was a legitimate but erratic and autocratic king who alienated the nobility and the common people and was eventually overthrown by Henry Bolingbroke, who assumed the throne as Henry IV. Unfortunately for the shrewd but now worried Henry, the crown hangs heavy. The play opens with him eagerly contemplating a crusade to the Holy Land so he can expiate his sins against Richard and redeem the way he rose to power only for him to learn of uprisings in Scotland and Wales, and increasing friction with Edmund Mortimer, Richard's hand-picked successor, and the Percy family. At issue are Henry's high-handed treatment of these men, who believed that their aid was essential in securing his rule, and his refusal to ransom Mortimer from the Welsh, the valiant, single-minded, and often heedless Henry Hotspur Percy is especially angry because Mortimer is his brother-in-law. And after a minor controversy over his refusal to send his prisoners to Henry IV, he begins to form a conspiracy with his father and the Scots and the Welsh to overthrow Henry themselves. To make matters worse, Henry's son and heir, Prince Hal, the Prince of Wales, is a wastrel who frequents the taverns and whorehouses of the London slum of East Cheap. He keeps the company of a dissolute crew that includes Sir John Falstaff, a notoriously fat bon vivant of dubious ethics and great lust for life, among other things. Hal vows to the audience that he will retain his honor and eventually redeem himself and assume a more virtuous position, but offers pranks, thievery, and fat jokes along the way, including pulling an Omar Little on Falstaff by robbing him incognito after Falstaff himself has robbed some pilgrims heading to Canterbury. 
When the Percy's revolt begins, Hal is called back to court and then enjoins Falstaff and his compatriots from Eastcheap to fight. Falstaff, for his part, uses the authority and money Hal gives him to take bribes from strong soldiers who do not wish to fight and embezzles the money he offers to the pathetic rabble he raises to serve as what he calls food for powder in the battle to come. The storylines merge at the Battle of Shrewsbury, where an outnumbered Hotspur seeks to buy time for the delayed forces of his fathers and the Welsh to gather through a bold assault on Henry IV's army. Prior to the melee, Hal offers to fight Hotspur in single combat, but the fight commences anyway. The Scot Douglas kills one of the king's retinue and threatens Henry, while Falstaff, nearly all of his piteous footmen eradicated, feigns death to avoid dying at the hands of Douglas. Douglas is captured and Hal strikes Hotspur down, only for Falstaff to rise up from the dead, seemingly, and claim the kill for himself, stabbing Hotspur's corpse in the thigh. The play concludes with Henry looking on with pleasure at the battle, having seen his prodigal son return in force and his enemies shattered, though Hotspur's co-conspirators, namely his father, the Archbishop of York, Mortimer, and the Welsh remain on the horizon, setting the stage for Henry IV, Part Two. Thank you very much, Will. Uh, another fabulous plot summary, as always. So, Will, this one's pretty good. Yeah, we'll get to it in the rankings, but I liked this one quite a bit. So... I wanted to start today's episode by talking about the contrast between Hotspur and Falstaff, who really, I think, are the dominant figures in the play, despite the fact that it's called Henry IV. And I think, you know, what's interesting about these two characters to me is that they seem to represent really opposing philosophies, and not just opposing philosophies, but the most extreme or maybe extreme is the wrong word, but they represent the fullness of those philosophies, right? Hotspur really seems to represent a certain idea of martial valor and military heroism. And that's the thing that he values and represents the value of, while Falstaff is, as you put it, more of a bon vivant, someone who represents, I would say, a more hedonistic, I think others might say it, a more humanistic view of the world. So I guess I don't really have a specific question, but what's your take on these two characters? Yeah, I think the key to your to your description and prompt there is really that you get to see the fullness and both the good and the bad of both of these philosophies in action. And of course, my sympathy, as in most things, is to find the middle way where you get a little of column A and a little of column B and try and avoid the worst aspects of either man. But Hotspur is a great example of somebody who is clearly feared, is clearly a serious person in various ways, but is also reckless at times. And there's a scene where he's talking to his wife, who is lamenting and, and says, why have you banished me from your bed? And Hotspur essentially dismisses her and says, you know, woman, like I have to go ride out. I don't pay attention to these silly things of a marriage and a relationship and a home or the simple pleasures of wine, women, and song. I just don't do that. Like, the pleasure for me is in the sweat of battle. Falstaff, on the other hand, has a wonderful speech where he talks about um, whether honor can set a leg. And he makes a point about how everybody's going to war, but often to no great effect and to great suffering. But on the other hand, you also see him behave in an extremely cowardly and self-serving way in the lead up to the Battle of Shrewsbury. So the juxtaposition is very clear, and you can see moments of wisdom or at least admirable qualities from each man, but you also see them at their most sort of abject and ridiculous uh, at the same time. Well, let's start with the last thing you said about Falstaff, about his cowardly acts, I guess, because I feel like what we see throughout from Falstaff is a, on the one hand, a real lust for life, and he has a few wonderful passages celebrating the pleasures of living and friendship. But he also comes off as, you know, he's he's a con man, he's a bullshitter, he abuses trusts that are placed in him. You know, I, I can't get away from feeling like, well, I, I mean, to, to put it bluntly, I mean, I find Falstaff to be a, a pretty repellent character. He, he really is not a character that I have a lot of sympathy for. And the degree to which he 
is, I think, loved, particularly today, I, I'm, I find difficult to understand because to me, his negative qualities are so evident. And the things that redeem him in people's eyes seem to be this, you know, what gets described as his humanism. Uh, you know, he has that, uh, that give me life speech or line later on. And I think that's something that, you know, makes sense. I think particularly in a, like, in a post 20th century, a post World War One really world where his disdain for military virtue in particular is celebrated. But I don't know that there's really that much to recommend him as a person, really. I mean, we don't see him really doing anything honorable at any point, including in the way that he treats people. So what do you think is so attractive about this character to people? Well, I do think that, uh, one, it's no accident that Falstaff is one of Shakespeare's most popular creations as a character. He may not necessarily be known to the casual reader of Shakespeare today, but certainly at the time, he was such a popular character that Shakespeare ends up writing other works featuring him, even though he may have been designed to be a throwaway character in some respects. And in fact, I believe Queen Elizabeth herself liked the character of Falstaff so much that she wanted to see him in his own play. He was widely seen as one of the great comic characters of the day. And and so a lot of that is people like watching the guy. He makes you laugh. He's amusing. He's often witty. He's fun to watch and despite all of his foibles or perhaps because of them. But well, I he's, think he's he, shameless, right? I mean, he's shameless. maybe and that's shameless part Shameless people are fun to... Yeah, they're fun to watch, right? Like... People that have no shame, uh, particularly when they're humiliated in various ways and they get their comeuppance, that's inherently enjoyable. I think that's all true. I think there's also something to his being, you know, he strikes me as a bit of a nihilist. You know, I see I see a lot of cynicism and a lot of nihilism in, mm. in his philosophy. And, and ultimately, that seems to me to redound to not like a general optimistic humanism, but a real selfish type of hedonism, really, I, I, I would say, is, is a more accurate description. And I think that can be attractive because it's something that, that is achievable for all of us, right? It's quite easy to mm. be the person in the corner. And I say this as a person who is pretty cynical myself. You know, it's pretty easy to, to sit back and say, you know, none of this has any meaning. His is an easy place to retreat to, and there's no real risk in it, ultimately. Once you have decided that there is no meaning and that that the only thing that really matters is your own pleasure in life pretty much anything becomes permitted and also mm. that criticism allows you to behave sort of however you want that to me is the attraction of the character do you think that's fair or no i mean i i, I would disagree a little bit on this i mean i do think that in the end, I think you're I think you're right in that there is very little to recommend John Falstaff and his actual actions, as we see in the play. And certainly by any objective moral standard, his behavior in terms of raising these footmen to be food for powder is completely immoral and execrable in every way. I think a lot of the contrast though that people draw between him and Henry Hotspur when you watch the play or when you read it, and certainly in my own mind when I sort of was drawing this dichotomy, isn't so much that Falstaff is a deeply admirable character, but that there is something that he gets more right about life than Hotspur, and that Falstaff is ultimately a less destructive figure than Hotspur, right? You invoked the idea of World War One. Uh, and the sort of interpretation of Falstaff past this point that has a particular resonance. But it's by, I think not without some justification, it's the Henry Hotspurs that often end up getting us into wars that serve very little purpose, ultimately, other than the egotism of a certain class or a certain conception of martial virtue. And it's usually the poorer people who suffer and the people that just want to go about living their daily lives that suffer greatly, by contrast. So Falstaff is sort of a simple character, in a sense, because he's an Epicurean. He would rather be at the tavern eating chicken with a bunch of wenches on his knee and drinking wine on somebody else's tab. 
But there's something very human about that. And there's something very inhuman about the way Hotspur wants to fight more for his own gain and honor uh, and glory. But the glory is fleeting in any sense, right? There's a sort of inflated notion that just because somebody gives voice to an idea of martial glory, that it's somehow going to be redemptive through the bloodletting. And Hotspur does not redeem himself. If anything, he is only a spur, if you will, to bloodshed and waste of life. And Falstaff has his own share of that through his greed and desire to enrich himself. But you sort of weigh the two against one another. And Falstaff may not be admirable, but I see him as coming out ahead of Hotspur in the dichotomy, if that makes any sense. So I hear what you're saying. I feel like if you'll allow me to go on a slightly extended digression, <laughs> which I promise we'll, we'll come back to this play. When I first read Henry IV Part One a couple years ago, I had just finished listening to the Iliad, the Greek epic poem. You may be familiar with it. You may have heard of it. And, you know, the thing that I honed in on, having just finished reading that, or listening to it, I listened to an audiobook was the way that Falstaff's construction of give me life felt like it was in dialogue, at least in my mind, again, having just listened to the Iliad, with something that happens, you know, with these two crucial characters in the Iliad, which are Achilles and Hector, who are the only two characters in that poem, in my reading anyway, who choose their own fate. And both Mm -hmm. of them choose death, right? So Falstaff says, give me life, like he wants to choose living. Both of those characters, in sort of very different constructions, but both Hector and Achilles essentially say, we know, like, I know that prosecuting this war and being here is going to lead to my death, but I believe there's more value in that than in choosing to live. You know, in Achilles' case, it's he's promised he can either you know, live out a long and fruitful life and die in obscurity, or he can die young at Troy and his name will be remembered forever. In the case of Hector, there's this wonderful and very tender moment in, I think it's book six of the Iliad, where he has this dialogue with his wife. And basically he says, I know that I'll die at Troy, but essentially I would rather die than live to see you carried away in slavery, right? And so there's a sense that they're fighting, you know, that, that, in fighting, they're fighting for something more. And like, though they know they will die, death is nonetheless, like to to die in service of an idea, at least in Hector's case, in Achilles' case, maybe less so, is, you know, is more noble than choosing to live. This is a really interesting point. And I think I would like to pull apart the metaphor a little bit or the analogy that you're making in the sense that you just alluded to Hector being a different case. I mean, Hector's home is besieged in the Iliad. And he's worried about his wife basically being raped and sold into sexual slavery, right? Very different than somebody who is hungry for honor alone. So, of course, I in, the, in this sort of tripartite cross-fictional uh, universe comparison, I think Hector, of course, comes out looking quite good. I think Odysseus actually would come out looking quite good as well because he wants to win the war so he can go back to his wife and child. Achilles, the person whose dream it is, and Hotspur, the person whose dream it is to die gallantly on the battlefield with no sort of heed for the the human cost of it, that comes across as quite barbarous. Falstaff is going to be Falstaff in any of these universes and is going to be the poor bastard who ends up charging across the beach and getting killed and would rather be at home in some of these conflicts, particularly the ones that don't have like the sort of high purpose to them. But, you know, I I feel like in that sense, it's sort of like Falstaff belongs in almost a different category. It's not necessarily about validating Falstaff per se, but recognizing that most people have more in common with Falstaff than Henry Hotspur, and that is mostly okay, because they're also probably not going to be conning people. Right, also, so where yeah. where I think I would disagree with you, Will, about this is that I think that Hotspur, I think Hotspur is actually a more ambiguous character, I mean, I don't know if ambiguous is, is the right word. I, I I actually find Hotspur in his way to be a much more admirable and noble character than, I mean, at at the very least, than the other rebels that he's fighting with. 
you know, one thing that we see in Hotspur, I think, is that his concern really is only for his own martial virtue and his own glory, right? Like Hotspur has this great respect for the war dead and for other people who share his code. He basically talks about how he doesn't really want too many people to die. Like he would gladly fight Prince Henry in single combat rather than have the battle where many people are going to die. His concern is about his own honor and, and about so, the honor of other people who share his But people. it's also, I mean, he's outnumbered, right? It's to his advantage to fight Henry or Hal one-on-one, right? In this context, I think. That, that is true. But, you know, we see in Hotspur, I think, there's a respect for, for opponents who share his ethos, just as there is a disdain for allies who do not. Mm. You know, for instance, he when he talks with... So Walter Blunt comes to offer peace terms to the rebels, right? And Hotspur says, Welcome, Sir Walter Blunt, and would to God you were of our determination. Some of us love you well, and even though some envy your great deservings and good name because you are not of our quality, but stand against us like an enemy, right? There's a respect <laughs> for the noble enemy, you know, for the enemy who shares his value. And similarly, later on, he is talking about... Oh, yeah, so this is this is the line I was referring to about single combat with Henry, uh, sorry, with Prince Henry, he says, would the quarrel lay upon our heads and that no man might draw a short breath today, but I and Harry Monmouth. And then there's another moment where someone's talking to him about Prince Henry. This is a separate moment. And it's relayed to him that Henry is less dissolute and, his, and is comporting himself well. And he basically says something like, after the battle, if he comports himself well, I'll salute him and treat him with, mm. you know, with good respect. And by contrast, very early in the play, there's this amazing, I think it's almost one of the first things that he says, and he's talking about this battle against the Scots, and the official from the king who has come to demand that his prisoners be handed over, who has not participated in the battle, and he talks about how this man just has no, basically has no respect for the dead, and no respect for, for these martial virtues. My liege, I did deny no prisoners. But I remember, when the fight was done, when I was dry with rage and extreme toil, breathless and faint, leaning upon my sword, came there a certain lord, neat and trimly dressed, fresh as a bridegroom, and his chin new-reaped, showed like a stubble land and harvest home. He was perfumed like a milliner, and twixt his finger and his thumb, he held a pouncet box, which ever and anon he gave his nose and took it away again, which there with angered, when it next came there, took it in snuff. And still he smiled and talked, and as the soldiers bore dead bodies by, he called them untaught knaves, unmannerly, to bring a slovenly, unhandsome course betwixt the wind and his nobility. With many holiday and lady terms he questioned me, among the rest demanded my prisoners in your majesty's behalf, I then all smarting, with my wounds being cold, to be so pestered with a popinjay, out of my grief and my impatience, answered neglectingly, I know not what he, he should or he should not, for he made me mad to see him shine so brisk and smell so sweet, and talk so like a waiting gentlewoman of guns and drums and wounds. God save the mark! And telling me the sovereign's thing on earth was parmaceti for an inward bruise. And that it was great pity, so it was, that villainous saltpetre should be digged out of the bowels of a harmless earth, which many a good tall fellow had destroyed so cowardly. And but for these vile guns, he would himself have been a soldier. This bald, unjointed chat of his, my lord, I answered indirectly as I said, and I beseech you, let not this report come current for an accusation betwixt my love and your high majesty. That was a pretty long summary of, of some of the things that jumped out at me about him. But I, I feel like it's unfair to say that Hotspur is seeking, you know, mass murder or something. Like, I don't think that's true to his character. I think that he's concerned with, mm. you know, with fighting it out with other people. And he's concerned with his, like, brotherhood of soldiery. Well, uh, yes. So that's definitely true, right? I think, And I think that's how he conceives of the world. But he wants to impose that vision of the world on other people. And I think that is a key difference, right? He has a particular notion of honor and the way the world should be ordered according to martial valor. And yes, it's true. He has respect for the war dead, 
right? But the emphasis is they have to fight and die in wars to receive honor. So in a sense, he's trying to impose his value system on the people that are fighting for him. And I think, again, this is a contrast between the low status of somebody like Falstaff, who's a knight, but is clearly not a particularly elevated figure, and just East Cheap, the slums in general, versus the world of the high nobility, where for the people that are low, they don't really gain that much. Like Hotspur seems to impute its glory, like what's the uh, what's the World War One poem by Wilfred Owen? Uh, it is sweet to die uh, for one's country, you know, dulce decorum as pro patria mori. That's sort of the vision that Hotspur is advancing. Ironically, with that poem, if you were to look at World War I, you see a lot of people that go off to their deaths who do not necessarily seek that glory, nor is it necessarily materially related to their lives in any way. Hotspur, it certainly is. The question is, is Hotspur's vision of that, yes, for those who can opt in willingly, that's sort of one motivation for the poor bastards that are having to sign up to join Hotspur's army, whether they're well compensated or not, as in the case of Falstaff doing the analogous thing for Henry IV. Those people, the idea of martial valor, it may exist, it may not, but it's not something that they would have necessarily opted in to. Yes, okay. I, I, I think I agree with that. I, I think, though, that I would say that. Hotspur and Falstaff, to me, seem to represent equally problematic visions of the world. Yes. And they're, they happen to be contrary visions of the world. And, and frankly, you know, the real problem is that they take them to these extremes. You know, it's not hard to imagine Hotspur as like a Mithraic votary <laughs> in ancient Rome, right? Like he says, I, only, I just want to, I, I really am only saying this because I want to mention this one line, which I think is one of the most amazing moments in the play where he's talking about the beginning of battle. And he says, let them come. They come like sacrifices in their trim. And to the fire-eyed maid of smoky war, all hot and bleeding, will we offer them? There's something truly terrifying in Hotspur's vision. And I, I cannot and would not deny that. Mm. However, I guess from my point of view, I think like Hotspur's easy to mock, right? He, he definitely stands for something real and he takes it to an extreme. And I think that makes him slightly ridiculous and also slightly terrifying. Or honestly, more than slightly. I mean, it, it is frightening to see that born to such an extreme. But you also do see, like, the real heroism that it engenders in him. There is something to admire in him, even as there is something frightening about him. Whereas with Falstaff, there's something to be sympathetic to, but very little to admire. I think there's an element of truth to that. And I, I think I would agree with that. I think the distinction that I might make, and this is, again, a very modern distinction beyond the world of classic chivalry and certainly the idea of Greek erite, the search for honor on the battlefield or quest for honor on the battlefield, but to me, the most admirable warriors, and you know, in my travels and in my work in Washington, I've certainly met a variety of people who I would say are, are heroic warriors in many respects. I guess I would just say, to me, the people that I end up admiring the most are often the, the citizen soldier who is capable of great acts of heroism, but it's not because they are hungry for honor or acclaim, per se. It's because they're doing what needs to be done, however unpleasant the task may be and however arduous the sacrifice may be. And that's very different from this heroic conception, which is all about glory. War is very seldom, I think, glorious for many of the participants. And there are moments of great heroism, absolutely. Uh, and there is a measure of glory that is accorded to that. But one of the things that I find remarkable about, you know, wars in the modern era are people that come from relative obscurity and do great things, but it's not necessarily with this idea that they're going to be transcendentally honored. They do it for the people on their right and on their left. They do it for people back home, uh, and they do it to survive. And I think that that's remarkable enough 
without imputing all of the ideals of the high nobility, you know, onto it. And that's where I think Hotspur is a little bit more problematic, per se. But yeah, I'd agree. There's not all that much to admire about Falstaff, per se, though he does offer one great monologue that sort of is the encapsulation of his difference with Hotspur. Uh, and I'll read it here. Well, it is no matter. Honor pricks me on. <laughs> Yea. But how if honor prick me off when I come on? How then? Can honor set to a leg? No. Or an arm? No. Or take away the grief of a wound? No. Honor hath no skill in surgery then. No. What is honor? A word. What is in that word, honor? What is that? Honor. Air. <laughs> A trim reckoning. Who hath it? He that died a Wednesday, doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Is it insensible then? Yea, to the dead. But doth it not live on with the living? No. <laughs> Why? Detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll none of it. Honor is a mere scutcheon. And so ends my catechism. There's an interesting contrast in that vision, and there's a level of insight that I can appreciate, even if Falstaff himself is not the man you want leading or encapsulating the virtues of your society. But I, as by way of transition, though, James, I'd offer a brief bit of trivia. Did you know that there is a British professional soccer team named after Henry Hotspur. I was aware that there is a team called Hotspurs, but I did not realize that it was actually named after Henry Hotspur. Indeed. So Tottenham Hotspur, which a friend and tutor of ours in college actually was a massive fan of, was uh, named after Henry Percy, better known as Harry Hotspur, the rebel in Henry IV Part One, uh, And apparently, since Harry Hotspur is from Northumberland, that's where the team is based, and thus, that's how Tottenham Hotspur became Wow, interesting. Yeah, quite an interesting bit there. But I guess this leads into other themes from this play, which is unusually rich, I would have to say, by any measure. Let me just note, Will, I think we're in agreement that there is a real contrast of philosophies between these characters, right? Yes, I would agree with that. And that the problem here, I think, you can tell me if you disagree, I think that what this play is doing with these characters is showing both what is appealing and what is rotten in both of these philosophies. Yes, and, I, I would agree with that. And I think while we disagree on which one of these two sort of views of the world I think we would more value or more admire, I think that one thing that we're supposed to get here is that there is a middle way. And I think we're going to come back to that probably as we continue yeah. the Henry IV so, cycle. Uh, yes. That's where I started is I think this idea of the middle way and trying to avoid the vices of either party while recognizing the virtues. I happen to think that Falstaff's vices are less destructive than Hotspur's, which is maybe why I slightly favor him in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But a world of John Falstaff's is, is not great. And in fact, it'd be pretty terrible in a lot of ways because sometimes you do need people to rise to the occasion and yeah. Falstaff is manifestly incapable of that. But the question that I was sort of keeping in the back of my mind during our conversation is, who in their unreconstructed state leads more to um, massive potential misery in politics? It's probably the Hotspurs rather than the Falstaffs. The Falstaffs do bad things, but it's a, of a slightly different order of magnitude because they lack ambition, frankly. But yes, I, I would agree with you there. Well, yeah, and I think the, the point I'm trying to get to is I think, to, you know, to sort of preview what I think we're probably going to be talking about a lot in the next play in this cycle is... 
education. And I think we're supposed to see that, you know, that there is something to be taken from both of these views of the world, but that to take it to these extremes is to take the wrong lesson. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, Will, so having gotten through a pretty robust, I think, conversation on the front of Hotspur and Falstaff, another thing that I'm really interested in with this play, or or I should say something that popped into my mind and I couldn't really get out of my mind as I was reading this play and, and reading particularly about the conditions that lead to the rebellion against Henry IV, is you said something that I thought was really interesting as a way to contextualize warfare when we were doing our King John podcast. I think I you, you'll have to remind me. I think you said it was a Clausewitz. No, it's a uh, it's a Thucydides thing. For oh, okay, sure. okay. But but the <laughs> idea being that there are three main reasons that people go to war, and those three reasons are fear, honor, and interest. And we were talking in the context of King John. You brought that up because. We were talking about how John seems very motivated by fear and that therefore like much of what happens in that play is, is driven by his fear and, and the poor decisions that he makes because of that fear. Mm-hmm. And then I was reading this play and I couldn't get that fear, honor, interest trichotomy out of my mind, basically because whenever we hear these rebels talk about why they're rebelling, it seems to come back to resentment. The rebel lords here being Hotspur, Worcester, Mortimer, and Glendower seem to be motivated primarily by questions that I would, that are not explicitly honor, but that I would reduce down to or think can boil down to being questions of honor and on the one hand that's northumberland and worcester being basically resentful of not being as powerful as they thought they should become after assisting bolingbroke now henry the fourth in his rebellion against richard the second and then in the context of hotspur there's a sense of aggrieved honor you know, basically that when the king wants his prisoners, that he's insulting him. And I, I felt like I saw this throughout. And then I kept thinking about it. And I was like, well, wait, like, then if we go back to the Henry VI plays, that's really war from interest in terms of these nobles who are rebelling or, or from basically fomenting and fighting civil wars in Henry the, in the Henry VI plays are doing it in pursuit of their own self-interest, right? They think this is going to basically advance their position in the kingdom. So my question to you is, do you agree with me that in this play, the rebellion is primarily a question of honor, or I guess their perception of their honor being slighted? Or do you think it really all just comes down to interest and the honor stuff is is, is window dressing for that? And then also, what are the ramifications of it being war over honor rather than one of the other things? Yeah, this is a great question. And of course, in the real world, I often think that these uh, motives that Thucydides lays out in the Peloponnesian War for why wars happen, they're often very blended and it's hard to actually separate them. But I do think it's useful to talk about them in this way and try and distill. So I think it's probably different for different characters. Uh, Hotspur, I see as somebody who's very much motivated by honor and the sense of being slighted. Whether or not that pertains to, say, his father or the Archbishop of York or Glendower, the Welshman, or Douglas, the Scot, is maybe a separate question. And I would see them as maybe more seeking their interest Maybe it's related to honor in the case of the Welshmen and the Scots in case of declaring their own independence in various ways. But I do see, if you look at Hotspur as the driving force behind the rebels, which I think is actually a fair interpretation, it is because of the sense of being slighted. And it's the sense of them helping uh, Henry IV take power and not being appropriately appreciated and not being respected. And I think that that kind of imbalance is... Can I quickly read one of Hotspur's quotes here that I think speaks very directly to this? Yeah. He's talking about Bolingbroke, and he says... In short time after he deposed the king, soon after that deprived him of his life, and in the neck of that task, the whole state, to make that worse, summoned our kinsman Mortimer, who is, if every honor were well placed, indeed his king, 
to be engaged in Wales, there without ransom to life forfeited, disgraced me in my happy victories, sought to entrap me with intelligence, rated my uncle from the council board, enraged, dismissed my father from the court, broke both our oath, committed wrong our wrong, and in conclusion drove us to seek out this head of safety and withal to pry into his title, which we find too indirect for long continuance. So I see a lot of resentment yeah. and yeah. bitterness over perceived slights. Yes, yes. And, and I think there's a difference in how wars that are motivated, I think, by these different issues or stakes change over time and how they actually impact the course of the war. In some ways, if you look at the honor as a question of Hotspur's honor, and if that's not widely shared, perhaps it's actually rather easy to crush that sort of rebellion and end that war by killing the person who is most committed to this idiosyncratic and highly personalized sense of honor. By contrast, if it's honor shared by a people, it might be much more difficult. And this is something that actually you get to, I think, more in the wars of religion, you know, 30 years war, and also in the wars of post-French revolution, popular mobilization, and so forth, where people feel like they have a stake in the nation state, regular people, not just the nobility. And so sometimes honor, I think, can be either the war that can be ended most easily, or it can be the war that becomes completely intractable. And it all depends whether the quest for honor and the desire to avenge slights is concentrated in one person, or if it's broadly shared amongst the multitude. But there's a lot there. So it's it's an interesting point and one that's worth thinking about for sure. Well, so for instance, one thing that, that came to mind to me on this point was, you know, there's that scene where they haven't even fought a battle yet. And you see Worcester and Mortimer and Hotspur looking at a map, bickering about how they're going to divide up the kingdom. And so I'm wondering if this type of honor-based grievance can also lend itself to internal fracture. And I think I also saw that in the, before the Battle of Shrewsbury, they, the rebels are having this debate about whether or not they should offer battle. And maybe this is too specific to the particulars of this time and place, but it felt like there was this honor-based argument in favor of offering battle, right? And not being cowardly. In contrast to like a more Fabian strategy of mm-hmm. of delay, right? And where, you know, there are several members of their coalition who haven't arrived. Their force is weak in comparison to the kings. But, you know, they want to have the battle anyways because they didn't want to be cowards. Whereas I wondered if in a situation where they were being more calculated about why they were going to war, that wouldn't be such a consideration. Yeah, I think that's actually right. And there is some hesitation among the other people that Hotspur is talking to about whether the battle should be joined or not. So I actually think that's a very good point. If you were talking about whether it's the Fabian strategy or merely seeking to fight a delaying action and not worrying about whether you win or lose the battle to some degree uh, in order to win the war, there's a different framing there. Hotspur wants to lead his army in to battle gallantly against Henry IV. And he has, who is the man who's described as a wild Scotsman, very battle-ready, very impetuous as well in the Earl of Douglas, very widely admired for his martial virtues. So it doesn't really surprise me that they want to go in and seek battle directly and seek victory and have their gallant charge and martial valor turn the battle around single-handedly when the really the more prudent thing might have been to delay the enemy as long as possible while your forces and and reinforcements regroup and reconstitute themselves and that's something that's i think on the minds of both parties in this clash. Mm-hmm. There is sort of a something to what you're saying about them seeking honor through the glorious charge against the enemy. And I'm not sure, it doesn't necessarily serve them well in the end, right? I mean, they yeah. Hotspur is killed, Douglas is captured and ransomed. So, Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like they make a real mistake in not consolidating their forces and offering battle 
now rather than waiting until they have their full coalition. And and I felt like there was a little bit of magical thinking by Hotspur <laughs> in that where he talks about how like, oh, because our forces are divided, actually it's better because, you know, we're mitigating the risk. If we lose here, we're still going to be able to fall back to another position and like have more forces. And, and it just seemed like he was trying to justify m- making a decision that was probably pretty bad. Yeah. But you, yeah. I, you know more about this. I mean, I am no expert on military matters, but it just seemed like that justification was pretty obviously stupid. Well, and it, it comports with the vices of the Hotspur vision of the world, right? Where when you're prizing your own honor and also perhaps uh, out of hubris, overestimating your own abilities to single-handedly turn the tide of, of battle, that can lead you to make some pretty disastrous decisions. When you start drinking your own Kool-Aid, that's usually a bad sign right. for sure. I guess, yeah, the, the whole dividing forces thing and his whole vision of, of fighting this battle It doesn't end well for him, and I think it's because he cannot turn away from the idea that he's the indispensable man. Right. And as, you know, the famous phrase goes, the graveyards are littered with indispensable men throughout the history of the world. So I think that's the fascinating thing about Hotspur is he doesn't actually achieve immortality in the same sense that you would uh, think that he imagines, right? Right. He is not the world-bestriding conqueror here. He's somebody who makes a rash and impetuous decision and ends up coming up short in the actual event. This is an interesting thing that you bring up. That, that, that is definitely true. I'm not going to dispute the truth of that statement. But one thing that did jump out at me, right? So Henry IV offers these pretty generous terms, to the rebels, right? Where he said, mm. I don't, I, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically he says, put down your arms and everyone can go free, more or less, mm-hmm. right? Given his advantageous situation, he could easily have offered significantly more punitive terms, I think, and still felt confident that he would win the battle. Mm-hmm. And the other rebel lords hide from Hotspur that the terms that the king has offered are so generous. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like I think Hotspur makes a bad tactical decision, right, where he gives himself too much credit or puts too much stock mm-hmm. in his own martial virtue and the virtue of Douglas to like overcome the numerical odds. But it's not like he's trying to seek out battle at all costs. Or at least, or maybe I should say we don't know if he is or not because he's not given the opportunity to understand the the truth of the situation, right? It's presented to him that the king has offered very, I don't remember exactly what's represented to him, but it's much more punitive than what is the actual offer that's made. Yes, yeah. I think this actually pivots to an interesting conversation that I wanted to get into about Henry IV, who, by the way, for being the title character of the play, is a pretty small character or personality in it. But I can't tell if Henry IV is a great politician or not a very good politician at all. He seems very invested in this politics of reconciliation. Right at every turn, you know, he seems to offer generous terms. He offers people to come back into the fold with almost no penalties whatsoever. And yet he's also imputed pretty dark motives by the rebels. And so, for instance, the Earl of Worcester doesn't want to accept peace terms because he says, the king will always think him in our debt and think we ourselves unsatisfied till he hath found a time to pay us home. So, that you know, they believe that, or he represents to believe that if they accept the deal from Henry, that Henry's just going to be biding his time until he can basically shank them. And you see this throughout with Henry, where Henry's whole philosophy is about holding himself back, not betraying his hand, not showing what he's really thinking. And I'm not sure if it serves him really well, by which I mean, like, truly, like, I I can't tell if it has been an extremely successful strategy for him or if it's been a pretty bad strategy for him. Mm. Do you have thoughts about that? So I think that the contrast is instructive with Richard II, and with a variety of other people, including his own son. But if you think about Henry IV's virtues in Richard II, when he was Henry Bolingbroke, he's a Machiavellian. He recognizes the value of understanding court politics and preempting your enemy's 
dividing and conquering, making sure you have a secure power base. These are lessons that Richard never really took on board and never really absorbed, and in fact, very much the opposite. However, Henry IV lacks any real type of popular appeal, and because he's the one who upended the divine right and the legitimacy of Richard II, he's vulnerable to all sorts of counterclaims by other people, including by Mortimer, who Richard II basically anointed as his successor in the previous play. So in that sense, you have somebody who's more savvy to politics and recognizes where the danger lies. In, in Henry IV, Henry you mean, IV. right? In Henry IV, yes. In Henry IV, he's more savvy about politics. He knows what's going on, but he's sort of trapped by trying to contain his own civil discord. He's never able to take the crusade to expiate his own sins or to achieve any external goal, right? He's always trapped trying to look over his shoulder and secure himself and his issue from being overthrown. And I think that's the challenge that Hal is going to face going forward. And that's a major difference, I think, between Henry IV, but also Richard II as well. He's more of a modern political figure, but he hasn't really figured out the trappings of how to make yourself loved as a mm -hmm. ruler and how to rule effectively and actually accomplish proactive goals rather than just cling to power. He knows that he can't assume that it's just going to stay with him. He has to protect yeah. it and fight for it. Richard never really got that. Whereas future kings are going to be able to meld a little bit more of a proactive and externally directed agenda and more popularity, broadly speaking, than Henry IV, who's a Machiavellian schemer is ever going to be able to do. And that's the challenge of that character. What I found myself wondering here is like, is his behind the scenes scheming something that's working against him because no one really knows what he's thinking and therefore it drives these rebels to believe that no matter what he says, he's always planning their demise? Or is it only because of that that he's managed to survive on the throne for so long? So and I, and I, think, I don't know if that's an answerable yeah. question. But I like, think it's a bit of both. I, I honestly do think it's a bit of both. And it's an interesting juxtaposition. I think the other issue of it is the nobles are not only afraid of his Machiavellian nature to some degree, but really they recognize that he doesn't have a strong claim on legitimacy at all, which is because of the manner in which he ascended to the throne. And they feel like he owes them and is thumbing his nose at the nobles. Let me just make right? a quick sidebar on this point, Will, which is that the rebels complaining about Henry overthrowing Richard and how it was such a bad thing for him to do and how they were like coerced into it is total BS. <laughs> yes. At least in the Shakespearean universe. I mean, I don't know about it in real history, really. But Northumberland was a major cheerleader for Bolingbroke against Richard II in the play Richard II. These guys are yeah. definitely throwing in like a lot of hot rhetoric about how they were coerced when they were very enthusiastic about this change. Well, and of course, I mean, they're backing a claim of dubious legitimacy anyway in trying to elevate Mortimer. It's like, yes, Richard II said Mortimer would be his successor, I think that was a little bit more contested as to whether that was actually the right or correct choice. But essentially, you're dealing with successive waves of usurpers uh, in one manner or another. And we've talked about this in prior podcasts, but the point at which you stop saying somebody's a usurper and start saying that they have a legitimate claim, it's a bit ambiguous, right? Yeah. Uh, and often quite self-serving. But with that in mind, let's take a step away from the politics for a second. I had a question for you related to the actual construction of this play as a piece of entertainment and as an exercise in world building. There are three very distinct settings here. You have the rebel camp, you have the court in London, and you have Eastcheap, where Prince Hal spends most of the play hanging out with Falstaff and the rest. And you also have great shifts in tone. This play is often very funny, particularly in the East Cheap scenes, and it can take on the martial cast of the rebel camp, and it's got the high politics and scheming of the court. 
How many... I will yeah. actually note on this point... Sorry, Will, I, I do want you to get your question, but I also want to note that Hotspur is a surprisingly funny character for someone who is... Although I think some of that has to do with interpretation or how an actor plays him, but there is a way to play Hotspur where he's very ironic and funny. Yes, I think so. Though I often think there's a way of playing that as just unintentionally... Yeah, yeah. You can play him as a dullard or you can play him as a very ironic character. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, actually, there's a little bit of nihilism, I think, if you play him as, as extremely ironic, considering what he's advocating doing. Right. But regardless, yeah. So the question I have for a question I have for you, James, is we look at the three settings and we look at the different tones that Shakespeare strikes over the course of this play, which go from comic to dramatic of the highest stakes. And my question is, when you're trying to direct a film, when you're trying to write a screenplay or a novel or any work of art, uh, it's often very difficult to do this. So why do you think what Shakespeare does works? And I guess presupposing that, do you think it works? And does it actually hang together? Because we've seen where it doesn't in prior plays, I think. To answer the last question first, I think it absolutely here does work. In fact, it works extremely well, in my opinion. And he, you know, he really succeeds, I think, in spanning, as you said, right, it spans the rebel camp, the world of like very high politics, and the world of truly the common man, like not just the common man, but the most common man, the most low level of national life, if I can put it that way. And he accomplishes something that's, I think, extremely tricky, which is that he manages to blend these tones and get at something very serious and, and weighty while also having these moments of great levity and humor. So I think that's a, a huge accomplishment. As to why it works, I think there's a few elements here. One is that even though there is contrast between the three worlds, they're all somewhat unified, right? And I think they're basically unified by the character of Prince Henry, who migrates between the world of East Cheap and the world of the palace and the world of battle and brings you with him. And he's, and so, like, there's a reason that you can get Falstaff and Hotspur in back-to-back -back scenes, and it's because of Hal's association with both those characters in, in different mm -hmm. ways. I think also a big part of it here is that the humor never supersedes the real thing underneath the humor. Mm. So, for instance, we talked a lot in when we were in our first topic about Falstaff and Hotspur. We talked about or, or I made reference to the fact that Hotspur can seem slightly ridiculous. Right. And he's literally made fun of by Hal in, in a let me see if I can find it. It's quite funny where Hal is talking with Falstaff and I think they're in East Cheap. And they're talking about this coming rebellion and Prince Henry, i.e. Hal, starts talking about Percy, i.e. Hotspur, and he says, I am not yet of Percy's mind. This Hotspur of the North, he that kills me some six or seven dozen of Scots at a breakfast, washes his hands and says to his wife, fie upon this quiet life, I want work. Oh, my sweet Harry, says she, how many hast thou killed today? Give our own horse a drink, says he, and answers, some 14, an hour after, a trifle, a trifle. <laughs> on the one hand, like, we see how this is ridiculous. On the other hand, we get to the point of battle and we see what seriousness there is that underlies Hotspur. <laughs> and I think we see this throughout the play. It's not, it's not just with reference to Hotspur, where, like, though there is the humor, the humor is used to gently point out <laughs> where the thing becomes ridiculous without ever saying that the thing is in its essence ridiculous, if that makes sense. Mm. So like as I was reading the play, the movie that kept coming into my mind that like felt the most similar to it, even though they're dramatically different in plot, mm -hmm. in theme, but I kept coming back to Bridge on the River Kwai, the David Lean movie from I think 1957, mm -hmm. which like, you know, I think we think of all these David Lean movies as being these huge epic scale, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type grand spectacles. But I watched that movie again a couple years ago and I remember being like, oh my God, like this movie is hilarious. And like, <laughs> we don't think about it that way 
because the Allegheny's character is such an extreme character and mm-hmm. because the situation is so high stakes, but he mixes in this humor throughout that allows the thematic center of the movie to expand. And I think that is at the heart of, of what is successful yeah. at Henry IV in this way, is that the humor actually, and the, and the moments of levity actually add to the intellectual and thematic resonance of the play rather than flattening it, which I think is often what happens. You know, when you try to show what's funny about a serious thing, you end up flattening it and saying, no, actually, it's just ridiculous. And what Shakespeare really succeeds in doing here is ultimately a success of execution rather than a uh, success of concept in that the humor that he puts into the play shows the foibles of the thing without reducing the thing to being just what is ridiculous about it. Does that make sense? I, I don't know if I've articulated this well at all. but No, I, I think I see what you're saying. I suppose what I derive from that explanation is he's created a world that is capacious enough and involves enough people and enough different fully fleshed out personalities in which the humor feels natural and organic and the product of specific situations and people, not just being shoehorned in, you know, instrumentally. Yes. Or and, and let me just out of curious, you know, just out of a desire to try it out. You yeah. Know? Let me, let me build on that. So I think that's true. I think there's a real breadth of scope to the play, right? So like you do have these three different settings with these three very different groups of people, but then also you have, these moments of real humanity throughout the play and, you know, these little vignettes that sometimes involve characters who aren't really that central, right? I mean, there's this amazing and really tender moment between Mortimer and his wife and his wife speaks Welsh and not English. And so he's talking to her, I think through Glendower, Mm -hmm. but it's very tender. And they're talking about he's departing for the war and she doesn't want to leave him. And you see this real affection. You know, there's another moment when, before Falstaff and his goons basically hold up this procession, you see the procession itself they're going to hold up. And it's these two, like, essentially two Teamsters, the equivalent of two Teamsters in the medieval world. And they're talking and you just get to live with them for a little while. So I think a lot of what makes it work is that Shakespeare lets you just be there with these characters and see who they are mm. and see that they're real people and that their concerns are the same concerns that you may have and that there's real tenderness and sincerity to them, even if they're doing things that we don't agree with or we think they're mm-hmm. misguided or, you know, where we think Hotspur is too impetuous or we think Falstaff is abusing the trust that's been placed in him by Henry. Ultimately, what it comes down to to me is that Shakespeare shows us the humanity of these characters. I get If I could just reduce it to the most basic answer to you, that would be it, probably. Yes. So on that note, I think we should rank this one. James, where does this play fall for you? So this is another one where I think the more I've thought about it, the more rich it becomes. And actually, I think I'm going to go and say it's my new number one, Will. Mm -hmm. Having, you know... It's not as, like, straight-up entertaining, you know, just plot-wise, as, like, Richard III, which was my previous number one, now my number two, I think is just a really entertaining play in addition to having a lot of psychological depth to it. This play, I feel like the more you think about it and the more you get into the characters, the more it reveals itself to you and the more you realize just what an amazing accomplishment it is. So, uh, to, to me, it's, of the plays we've read, it is... It's my new number one. I agree with that. This play is a leap ahead for Shakespeare in several different dimensions. Multiple characters that are three-dimensional. He's learned the ability of sequencing multiple settings and events in a compelling fashion. So you can even see him learning from the Henry VI plays, from Richard III, even from King John. I think he's learning from each of these, and it's really, really effective. I'm torn because Richard III, more entertaining, and as a character, Richard III is just so unforgettable. Mm-hmm. But I think this play is, it's really, truly a undersold masterpiece in a lot of ways. And it's setting the stage for more and more complex work. So for me as well, it's number one. Yeah. To respond to that, I, I would say that I think both Falstaff and Hotspur are really tremendous characters in this play. And I think the contrast between them and what you can get out of the contrast between them 
is richer than Richard III, who is a great character and a great villain. And Richard III does, I think, embody a certain philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. He is fully complex in that way. But I actually think both of these characters are probably, even on their own merits, richer than Richard. Yes. On that note, I would say Falstaff is the MVP. What about you? I'm going to go with Hotspur. All right. Uh, on well, that's probably not a surprising dichotomy based on the conversation we had earlier, though. Indeed. Indeed. So, James, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for us this week? Yes, Will, I absolutely do. I recently watched Witness for the Prosecution, the Billy Wilder film starring Charles Lawton from, I, I don't remember what year. I Actually, I think it is from 1957. I think it lost Best Picture to Bridge on the River Kwai, funnily enough. I had never seen it before. It is based on an Agatha Christie play, which I also did not know. It is talk about movies that manage to blend the high and the low. It is very funny while also being quite serious. Amazing performances from both Charles Lawton and Marlene Dietrich. And a pretty good whodunit that's quite, I think, subversive once you get to the end as well. Fascinating. So give that to us one more time. What's the recommendation? Witness for the Prosecution, directed by Billy Wilder. And that's our show. Next time, Sir John Falstaff gets his own spinoff and tries to see if marriage might not be for him in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.